Bye. Short Bus Debate Club. It's a bus. Rolling. get on board. <laughs> Hello, I'm Darren Jolly. <laughs> it's time to get this short bus started. So let's roll and on with the show. Hello everyone. This is Brian Courtney once again with uh, sorry. Hello everyone. This is Brian Courtney with Short Bus Debate Club. As always, Darren Jolly is here. Alright. And tonight we are continuing this third party journey. Um, we have Jim Rex, the National Chairperson Emeritus uh, from the Alliance Party with us. Um, hi, Jim. Hey, Brian. Nice to be with you, Darren. Hey, yeah, thanks, for, uh, thanks for getting on board. <laughs> um, so, you know we had a, a a real brief conversation before we started recording and i think you know where this this question is going but um i think a lot of our listeners are going to want to know what your your party's platform is all about you know what you guys are trying to accomplish so can you give us an idea of what the alliance party is is all about and why somebody might want to switch lanes so to speak yeah, I'll try to. Um, it's a um, it's a story that um, needs a little bit of an explanation and context. Um, your listeners need to know that um, my background has been in education. I've been a college president. I've been a high school English teacher, a football coach, and a bunch of things in between. And um, really was pretty much an independent my whole life. Um, because of my jobs, I oftentimes worked with boards that had people representing different parties and ideologies. And so I kept my political identity and political beliefs pretty much to myself because of those positions. Um, I ran for my first political office uh, when I was 65 years of age. And I'm in the state of South Carolina, which is a very, very red state. And uh, I ran for secretary of education. In this state, they call it uh, state superintendent of education, but it's an elected constitutional office. And uh, with my background, K through 12, higher ed, high school, et cetera, you know, I had a, a pretty decent resume for that job. I ran um, because I was encouraged to run by former governor of the state, uh, Richard Riley, who later became national secretary of education under uh, bill clinton and he's been a friend of mine off and on for years and talked me into running we're still friends in spite of that um <laughs> I, I told him i told him i might write a book someday be careful if you run for office you might win the damn thing um it does uh, it does change your life it does give you a perspective that uh, you probably can't get any other way um at any rate I ran uh, as a Democrat, um, the heavily Republican state, as I said. I ran in 2006 and um, wasn't supposed to win. I ran up against a Republican opponent who had beaten four other candidates in the Republican primary without a runoff. Uh, she had uh, 
raised about three times the amount of money I had, had the endorsement of the governor and every Republican in the legislature. And it was pretty much in this state a, a foregone conclusion that Democrats couldn't win, especially statewide offices. I won't go into all the details, but I ended up winning that that election by 455 votes out of more than 1.1 million cast, the, um, the narrowest margin in the history of our state till today for a statewide race. So I was a, a bit of a fluke, first time candidate for anything, winning as a Democrat in a Republican state, a little bit like running as a third party candidate. Um, when I got in and watched uh, how the system works from inside, it became apparent after about a year or so that this was terribly flawed and that both parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party were equally responsible for the reason that we don't get things done in this country any longer, other than we're very good at dividing one another. But we don't get any, most of our problems don't get solved. And in fact, most of them don't even get recognized or addressed. And that was true in the area of education also. You and your listeners may not be aware of this, but in every state, I don't think there's an exception, all 50 states, education is the largest part of the state budget. So it's, it's an important job, whether it's elected or appointed, because not only of the fiscal responsibilities, which could argue that you're talking about something even more important in terms of developing an educated citizenry and a workforce for that state that would determine its outcomes for decades and generations. That's so kind of my with the possibility. Yeah. So with the you know with the possibility of the governorship, it, it could be the most important position in most states. Um, while I was on the campaign trail. And this upset, un, you know, un, unprecedented victory. Oh, by the way, this was in 2006. Today, in 2023, I remain the last Democrat elected to a statewide office in the state of South Carolina. So it was definitely an outlier. While I was running, um, I kept running into, on the campaign trail, a Republican who was running for governor a doctor by the name of Oscar Loveless, who's a phenomenal guy, one of my dearest friends now, uh, was the American Family Doctor of the Year about uh, 12 years ago, the only time we've ever had one from South Carolina. He runs a rural um, general practitioner clinic. He was running for governor against the incumbent, Mark Sanford, and a lot of people don't recognize that name maybe, but they might remember when he took off on the Appalachian Trail, which turned out to be a Brazilian um, trip to be with his girlfriend, even though he was married and had four kids back here in South Carolina. They caught him and uh, everybody thought it would end his career. Even though he uh, was governor, he uh, ran then for Congress after that and by God, he got elected again. So um, might've been the precursor to Donald Trump in terms of uh, People saying character counted, but didn't really when it came down to it. Yeah. At any rate, um, Oscar uh, was not able to beat the incumbent governor, which I know you two are pretty sophisticated and you're aware of the fact that more than 90% of the time in America, 
and this has been true for a long time, uh, incumbents over 90% of the time are reelected. And, um, you know, that's because they've got the brand, they've got the supporters, they've got special interests, got the name recognition. They almost always have much more money than their opponents, and they tend to get reelected. So Oscar lost, I won. Uh, we continued to be friends. And after I got out of office, uh, we we had many conversations and finally decided, you know, this is too important. What we both experienced, both the Republican and the Democratic parties, um, you know, we have to have people leave these parties, even if they've been elected to office in these parties, and tell the truth to the American people that this is not working. And it's it's getting worse, not better. And there has to be a better approach to politics. So out of that effort on our part, we uh, created a new party called the American Party in South Carolina. In our state, and every state is different, but in our state, in order to get on the ballot, in order to get a, a party on the ballot, uh, you have to get 10,000 registered voters to sign a petition asking the state uh, to put the new party on the ballot. We ended up getting 16,000 and got the American party on the ballot. Uh, what, what year was that I, you did the, the American party? Well, it, it was officially recognized by the state of South Carolina after getting those 16,000 votes in 2014. Okay. But the, but the collection of those signatures was about a year and a half, two year process. Um, we did it almost entirely with volunteers county fair, state fairs, tailgates, uh, South Carolina football games and Clemson, you name it. Uh, we were there with our petitioners asking people if they wanted another choice. And frankly, whether they were sober or drunk, most of them said, yes, they wanted it. <laughs> if, you go to, if you go to tailgates, you know what I mean by that last statement. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, uh, make a long story short, it was, it was a couple of years of uh, getting a lot of earned media, the public, the press were really intrigued by these two high profile former Republican, former Democrat office holder and seeker um, being willing to publicly leave their parties, burn their bridges and try to use a different approach. Um, we had a lot of candidates over those years. We probably had close to 30 candidates. None of them won office, but we came close a couple of times and they got hundreds of thousands of South Carolina uh, voters to vote for them. Problem was that during that period of time, we, like I suspected two of you, realized that even though we were having some modest successes, the problems at the national level were getting worse and worse, Ex existentially worse, really. So we decided to reach out to some other parties that we felt were kind of in the broad spectrum of the center where we see ourselves being. And we had a meeting in Denver um, in the latter part of 2017 with those parties and spent two days talking about what we had in common and what we could have or should have in common. And out of that, um, in 2018, we formally created the Alliance Party. And the American Party in South Carolina was able to change its name with the Secretary of State. The American Party became the Alliance Party in our state. 
uh, in Minnesota, there was this long-standing independent party. Um, uh, Jesse Ventura, for example, was a governor of you know, that party at one time. They, uh, they became the Independence Alliance Party. Um, we had the Reform Party down in, in uh, Florida during that period of time. I know you've had them on your program since, but at that time they worked with us with the, uh, the formation of the Alliance. There was the Modern Whigs, which became a part of the Alliance effort. Um, there was another group called um, um, the American Moderates. So that coalition created the Alliance Party. For the most part, they adopted the tenets and the principles of the American Party. So the American Party that I described earlier, in many ways, became the new National Alliance Party. So when I when I described to, to you guys and to your listeners what we're trying to do with the Alliance Party, that's how we came to be in in 2018, and that's a thumbnail sketch of you know who the players were and and how we got to this point. Do you have any questions of me? either of you before I talk a little bit about where the Alliance party stands right now. That's what I, I, I was just going to say, you know, did, how did you guys do that? Cause you were talking about kind of, you know, merging or absorbing some of these, these other parties. Um, so was it kind of a big fight to come up with, the the pillars or the tenants that you're about to describe or did it just kind of was it a, a seamless transition because everybody knew how much trouble we were in i wouldn't say seamless <laughs> but um a lot a number of uh groups that were represented chose not to join um but i think the as you said just a second ago, the, the problem was so compelling that everyone was willing to make some compromises to try to create a national effort to create a viable, sustainable, competitive alternative to the duopoly. And all of us had to make some sacrifices. I mentioned to you that we changed the name. We loved the American Party name. I mean, part of the part of the message was it's time for us to stop thinking of ourselves as Republicans and Democrats and start thinking of ourselves as Americans. So we, we had to give up that. But the Alliance Party um, does represent, I think, at least as well, what we were what we were and what we are still trying to do with this political party slash movement to reform American politics. Um, the message now embedded in that term, the alliance, is the noun ally, uh, that, you know, we need politics in this country that gets us to start viewing our fellow Americans as our allies, not as our adversaries. We're in this thing together. I, I mentioned to you that I used to be a football coach, and I think most of your listeners, they have any, any experience in team sports, they know that if you have a united team competing against a divided team, you can bet almost every time the United team will win. And in this global competitive time that we live in right now, you know, we're playing against some very big antagonistic United teams. 
And here we are so divided that I think most of our enemies believe that the way to conquer this nation and our ideals is to help us destroy ourselves from within. And that's happening, unfortunately. And it's happening for a lot of reasons, but primarily because of the way the two dominant parties have approached politics and the way their candidates run for office and continue to do whatever is needed to stay in office. In other words, the career politician syndrome that both the Republican and Democratic parties have fostered and supported, uh, which has you know, put us in the position we're in now. So I think one premise that, that is very different about the Alliance Party is that we see ourselves of course, as a political party, but we really see ourselves as part of a movement that requires a political party. Frankly, the United States doesn't need any more political parties. We've got nearly 50 of them now, last time I counted. And we already have more than enough tribes and divisions in this country. What we don't need are more parties that are trying to emulate in many ways what the larger parties are, are already doing. What we need is a different approach to politics. And most of the other parties that I have studied, worked with, heard, are really not in any transformational way different than the Republican and Democratic parties, other than they're not as well-funded and you know they're not as large. But other than that, they're, they're smaller, weaker, more poorly financed, copies of the other two parties. Um, I know lots of them have very elaborate platforms, ideologies, philosophies, but frankly, words are cheap and they're getting cheaper all the time because of social media, now AI and a lot of other factors. And words are close to worthless when it comes, when those words are coming from politicians or political parties because people don't believe them, they don't trust them. They've seen them many times lie and uh, not keep their promises. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. Platforms, you know, platforms and those sorts of things have become almost irrelevant. Uh, one one glaring example of that that we see periodically is when you see a group of candidates from the same party, like right now, let's just say the Republican candidate standing on a stage, whether it's six of them or eight of them or 12 of them, and interviewers asking them questions on policy, and you get seven or eight different answers. They're all Republicans. They're the head of their parties. You think if anyone represented with consistency, their quote unquote platform, which by the way, most Republicans don't even know what the Republican platform is, nor do Democrats, nor do they care. And most of their candidates don't know and don't care either. So, you know, it's it's good, it's good intellectual exercise, but it, it doesn't really make much of a difference, unfortunately, perhaps, to most of our voters. All the polls show that the majority of Americans no longer believe or trust our politicians. And what we feel we have to do is reestablish that trust in our elected representatives. And we're doing that through this movement, through the Alliance Party, 
by recruiting and vetting a new breed of politicians. And I, I sent you, Brian, I, you probably hadn't seen it. I sent it to you late this afternoon, but we had a press release go out this week reiterating that the Alliance Party is the only party, political party in the history of America that has that requires term limits of all of its candidates who are running for legislative offices. Uh, if you're running for state legislature or you're running for the U.S. Congress, Senate, um, you have to agree in a formal public document called our candidate agreement to serving no more than a cumulative total of 12 years in a legislative role, elected legislative role. And not only is that a requirement to be considered for nomination in this party or legislative offices, um, it's something that we enforce. In other words, um, if someone is in office and they decide, even though they've made this very public and very formal commitment to serve no more than a total of 12 years, but they like it so much there, that it's you know, so many perks that they want to stay in office for longer than 12 years, number one, we don't let them run again under our banner. Number two, if they decide to use the power of the incumbency and see if they can get reelected as an independent or a member of another party, uh, we will run one of our candidates against them. And exhibit A will be the candidate agreement that they signed, which proves they're not trustworthy and not worthy of being reelected because they lied to their voters then and they'll lie to their voters now. I, I give you that kind of detail because it's one example of the kind of reform that can happen today if we would just get a political party in place in this nation who took it seriously enough to actually vet their candidates and hold them accountable. Um, the two major to, parties, go ahead, interrupt let me just, just in terms of like uh, trying to get to, because like sort of substantive. So like if say tomorrow, um, like the term limit stuff is good, but like, and of course, essential but if if tomorrow somebody was elected to president on, on for for the alliance party and you had the congressional reach to sort of like implement uh, the vision um so what would you uh what would you take care of first and and what would be last social security environment education healthcare, foreign policy u.s economy and and like in terms of like concrete uh policy how, how would you uh how would the Alliance Party approach these 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 issues? Well, we, we had a we had a presidential we had a presidential candidate in 2020, Rocky De La Fuente, and he he came in with the fifth largest total of votes. The party was a year and a half old at that time. Uh, the Democrats had the most. The Republicans were second. Libertarians were third. Green Party was fourth, and the Alliance Party with our presidential candidate was fifth. So I just want to make sure you guys know that we, we have had a, a, you know, a presidential candidate and we vaulted over the Constitution Party, which has been around for many, many decades, and mm -hmm. they had historically been number five. So if you look up Wikipedia, you'll see us there. Um, yeah, I looked at your list of, um, of issues. Um, a couple of real quick things. First of all, I think you left out an important one, important one. And I would 
urge you to consider adding this. When the, the most recent polls, and even some that go back a few years, when you ask Americans what they think our number one problem is or issue is, our government and congressional leadership is always at or near the top. They recognize that one of the major problems we have in this nation, maybe the worst problem, is that we need to reform our government. It doesn't work anymore. And our politics doesn't work anymore. I, I, if I were you guys, I would consider putting that on your list. If you had put it on your list, it would have been the first, it would have been number one for me. Well, tell us why, why that goes to number one. So, Okay, well, I don't think you're going to solve those other problems unless you have a functioning a democracy and a functioning government. Um, I mean, these problems didn't just happen out of the ether. They, they happened because we don't have a functioning government that can identify problems and find solutions and work together to implement them. So, you know, that that's the main argument I would make for it. The, the other thing I would point out is, and I know you, you guys are using this as a prompt to get uh, guests like me to give you more information about our parties and what we're trying to do. Of but of course, it's artificial. And you know that that's, that's not the way you solve problems. You don't do it sequentially. You don't do it chronologically. They're all, they're all interconnected. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the economy, for example, you, you can't deal with Social Security without dealing with the economy. You can't deal with health care without dealing with the economy and Medicare. You can't deal with foreign policy, military spending without dealing with the economy. You can't deal with education, as I mentioned earlier, without dealing with the economy. You can't deal with climate change and, you know, green economy and what's happening now with automotive strikes. I mean, it's all connected. And I think it is helpful to ask people where their priorities are. But in terms of solving these, you don't solve problems in a chronological, discrete way like that. But if they were discrete, I'd put reforming government and politics right at the top because the when other problems that, are not going to get solved. When you say that, Jim, are, are you are you talking about like a like a second constitutional constitutional convention or something? I mean, like, like. Well, I don't know that that's necessary, and and not only. Is it not necessary? It's not feasible because of the kinds of people we are now presently electing the office. I mean, you would have something a lot worse than a food fight uh, <laughs> that would do damage. It would do more damage than good. I mean, you you've got to put you've got to put people who who enter politics because they're interested in public service, not because they're interested in in having a career of thirty or forty years. Einstein just died in office at, at 90. We had a guy years ago named Strom Thurmond who died in office at 100. Once they get in, they almost never go home. And if you're going to be a career politician, I saw this firsthand. If you're going to be a career politician, by definition, the most important thing becomes to do whatever it takes to win that next election to stay in office. So solving problems, dealing with constituency needs, those things take a very, very far second, third, fourth place to getting reelected. Oh, yeah, because so, they, they start raising money almost immediately from when they grab their seat um, for the for the next election, which is just out of control. Um, 
I agree with you there. And obviously the government does need to be reformed, but you were right. I mean, we asked the question because I guess we wanted to know what was important to you. I mean, we're we're aware that all of this stuff is interconnected. Um, but what we're trying to figure out is, is there a match between like the Alliance Party and some of our listeners? Like there's maybe a listener in, I don't know, New York, and they think that the Green Party is the party for them because the environment is is their number one priority as a voter. So if the environment is also very important to the Alliance Party, then maybe that voter in New York now says, okay, well, maybe I, I need to look at the Alliance Party with a little more detail and try to figure out if if green is actually for me or or if i should you know go to the alliance party that, that's the only reason we ask you to prioritize it well I, I i wasn't criticizing i really wasn't criticizing the the purpose that you guys are using this for i understand it's a prompt to try to get at uh you know priorities and you know if i had to put numbers on them i would put reforming government and politics number one I would probably put environment and, and climate, uh, climate change number two because it's an existential threat, I believe, to the planet, to all of us. And the clock is ticking a lot faster than even the scientists thought. Things are happening more rapidly. than So we've got to get working on that. Given my background, you wouldn't be surprised, I guess, if I said um, if I were going to pick a number three, I'd pick education because you've got to have an educated citizenry to make this democracy work and all of these reforms uh, you know we've got to have smarter more committed um, better critical thinking uh, citizens because uh, they're getting the lead around by the noses right now by these two parties and the propaganda techniques that they're falling for uh, the disinformation or misinformation on social media uh, we have to educate our public if this democracy is going to prevail so they're all important but i guess those would be my one two and three well i i agree with you on all of those things the education thing i mean that's what darren and i are constantly saying is don't believe us you know don't believe what it is we're saying on this show do some research and and you know prove us wrong or tell us if we're right or you know anything along those lines because we want that same thing so well i i, 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 applaud, I applaud you guys for for doing it and i especially applaud you for giving your listeners access to this space this reform third party alternative uh you know this is something that there used to be a guy named marshall McLuhan. he wrote a book golly 40 years ago i guess now called the medium is the message. It was about messaging and propaganda and other things. But one of the one of the things he said that I always have always remembered is he said, you know, I don't I don't know who discovered water, but I'm damn sure it was not a fish. <laughs> <laughs> and that 
that is one way of describing the dilemma of American politics. We're, we're the only modern democracy that only gives our voters essentially two choices. And this environment that this two-party system has created over the last 150, 60, 70 years um, is, is something we've all been so immersed in not just us, our parents, our grandparents, their parents, that it's hard for most Americans to imagine it being significantly, substantially different. Um, they know it doesn't work. I mean, all the polling is showing that we're getting more and more dissatisfied, frustrated, exhausted, disgruntled. We're losing our faith in lots of institutions, including government, Supreme Court, on and on. So we know something isn't working. But we can't figure out how it could look different, you know, how you could have a democracy that could function differently than this. And that was one of my earlier criticisms of some of the other third party options. They're just sort of mini me's of the Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, their platform may be different. You mentioned the Green Party. They may focus in, you know, primarily on the environment or the Constitution Party on the constitutional interpretations that they think would lead to change and improvement. But they don't expect any term limits. They don't expect any transparency. They don't expect any accountability of their candidates. So if they are successful, there's nothing that indicates to me that they'll have candidates that will be any different than what we're getting now. Then they'll have a different label than Republican or Democrat. So that's why the Alliance Party is so different because it requires candidate agreements of every person running under our banner in any of our states. And this was true of Rocky De La Fuente when he ran for president. They have to sign this candidate agreement. For example, if you're running for a legislative office in addition to the term limit obligation and requirement, you also have to uh, provide your tax return information, the basic tax return information from the three most current years at least 90 days before the general election on your campaign website. We won't consider people for our nominations if they don't sign that as a prerequisite. It also talks about things that are harder to measure but are extremely important, civility, truthfulness, um, looking for a consensus and common ground with your constituents in terms of solving problems. That's the sort of thing that some candidates talk about, but no party expects or requires it of any of their candidates. So, and if that's you, what we say we want, why not? When you give these guys their their list of prerequisites, I, I guess that's kind of you know along question number three. Um, when you give them their prerequisites, did they come to you and say, hey, Jim, I want to run with the Alliance Party? Or did you seek them out because you knew they were dissatisfied somehow? Or how do you find those candidates in order to put them through the ringer, so to speak? Yeah, satisfy the, the, the candidate agreement stuff. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I probably should mention our, our website has the candidate agreements on it, has our principles, guidelines, all of that. The website's easy to remember, the, put T-H-E, thealliancepartycom 
all that information is on there. And if anyone's interested, I would encourage you to take a look at it. They, we get them both ways. Some come to us because they've heard of us. They've seen us on the ballot. That's why it's so important, by the way, to have candidates. You're not a real party in most voters' minds until when they go to vote, they see you on that ballot. Uh, you can have websites. You can have, you know, policy platforms. You can have conventions. It doesn't really matter if they don't see you on the ballot. So the more candidates we get on the ballot, whether they win or not, it it uh, solidifies in more and more people's mind that there is another option out there and they get more curious about it. And if they go to the website, that hooks a lot of them. They see it as being significantly different. But we do sometimes recruit people. And, and when we have meetings, sometimes we say this, these are the kinds of public servants we're looking for. We want people who see public service as a, as a one-time, not a career-long 30, 40-year commitment. Um, you know, George Washington, God bless him. <laughs> he went back to his farm, you know, um, voluntarily. These people never go back, almost ever. Once they get in office, they want to stay there, uh, you know, because they're so important, they're so necessary that they just don't think the country can survive without them being in that office. Well, that's uh, in the, the telecommunications seat that they're in or the insurance seat or whatever it is, you know, they're getting all sorts of really nice perks. <laughs> well, they are. And the nicest perk of all is huge amounts of money I mean, we're, we're seeing billions now spent in these campaigns, and that doesn't even count most of the dark money. Billions spent to keep them in office. And the longer they're in office and they go up to the seniority ranks that have been created uh, to make us think that legislation is brain surgery, that somehow you got to be there 30 years to be good at it. And by the way, that's BS. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can take an 18-year-old and, and, and teach him how to be combat ready in six or six or eight months you take a brain surgeon and teach them how to uh, do brain surgery in about four to five years but our legislators are telling us you got to leave me in office uh, because i get better and more more effective and more influential because i can be the chair of this committee or the chair of that but i got to stay here long enough to get that that's part of the vs part of the propaganda that the special interests that fund them love because the longer they stay in office and the more money they give them to do their bidding, the more powerful they are and the more they effective they are for them, for their needs, but not for us. Right. And they never mention like redistricting, you know, where they they redraw the line because, you know, this type of voter ended up moving into this neighborhood or or whatever. So they knew that if they didn't redraw their their line, then they had a solid chance of losing the election. So they they redraw the line so that they can make sure and stay. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that type of reform and saying, you know, you, you can't stay here forever, especially like, well, Strom Thurmond. I mean, once you start losing your mind and, and i'm not saying it was crazy i'm just saying that 
at a hundred no matter how stable you are you're a hundred years old so your mind has has gone at least some way south um so i'm not sure you should be a public servant anymore well all of the research i've ever seen plus my own personal observation as the longer people stay in office the more susceptible they are to corruption menendez for example with his gold bars his cash his new cars um the supreme court justices with the amount of money that's coming in for vacations and god knows what the longer you stay in the more special interest money is drawn to you because of the influence you have and a lot of people think that that the special interest money is to help you pass laws that will benefit them that's that's part of it but most of it is given to make sure you block things that will harm them or disadvantage them that, that they want you to be the gatekeeper for the, the status or the situation they've created over the years probably with your predecessors who they were also giving campaign money to so leaving people in office for long periods of time even if they're good people with the right intentions when they first come in is a dangerous thing to do and it's it's one of the many contributors to the dysfunctional system we have right now when you have these hyperbolic moments where like you suggested earlier uh what, what was going on with senator feinstein for the last few years um and we we don't know to what extent but uh S senator mcconnell like some of the the things that have been happening lately there where like if your eyes are open you should be having some pretty big question marks huh? definitely and and as bad the federal there's one other point i think is worth making as bad as the corruption and dysfunction is in the u.s house and the u.s senate we have a better shot at seeing it and, and finding out about it because the press corps still has significant resources focused on washington dc but i can tell you from firsthand experience our state legislative bodies are even worse because we don't have a, a press corps any longer that has you know the robust ability to keep them honest and to do the the in-depth research and investigative reporting that we had even 10 or 20 years ago so the corruption is rampant and and the corruption one one comment about corruption there's hard corruption and soft corruption the hard corruption is the gold bars the money the envelopes the trips you know the stuff that you can find out about maybe sometimes and measure the soft corruption especially in the state legislatures but it's also in congress you know the inside stock trading for example that goes on in congress is one example of the soft corruption but in the state houses you've got part-time legislators who have other professions and businesses and so you're a lawyer you know there's a lot of lawyers in, uh, in elected office and there's a reason for that all of a sudden they start getting clients that they never had before once they're elected to office all of a sudden their law firms decide they're they should be a partner because they're bringing in all of these new clients you have a, a legislator who's a contractor all of a sudden he's getting huge deals that never 
came his way before. He's also getting inside information about developments and land deals that are that are pending that he can take advantage of by purchasing land in front of that development on and on and on and on. Insurance agents. I mean, I, I, I have a list I could give you this probably 50 different professions and businesses that profit in a corrupt way, soft corrupt way, because they're in elective office. Well, so I don't... Got all I, I don't think you call it soft, though, because I mean, and I understand why you're calling it soft, but a lie is a lie and a bribe is a bribe. I, I don't care what form it takes. I mean, if you make money on the stock market because of a tip that came in or you're getting new business because you found out you could buy land at, you know, $200 per square foot um, and sell it for 12. Um, those are, those are still bribes. That's still corruption. I don't think that there's any, that's like a white lie and a black lie. It's, <laughs> there's no such thing. It's just a lie. <laughs> so Jim, do you, do you, address, do you address the, the conflict of interest stuff in the candidate agreement then? Yeah, we do. Uh, if you look at that, you'll see that uh, they, they can accept no dark money and they can accept no money that has any strings attached to it. And then that they, they have to make that pledge. They won't take it and they won't feel obligated because they've gotten money from a particular donor or a particular entity. Now, that's, here I am with soft and hard again. The, the hard measurable things that we require, like term limits, we, we can monitor and enforce that. The tax returns, we can monitor and enforce that. Disability, uh, how you react to donor money coming in to help you. Uh, we're going to do our best. And if we find it, uh, we'll disqualify them if they haven't already gone to the election. We've done that with two candidates already in our existence. We've withdrawn their nomination because of the behavior that occurred during their candidacy. So given, uh, before given the election, the, the, the violated like, the candidate, candidate the agreement. Fourth, the fourth question, uh, like the, so like as as far as the steering committee, if you start to see people that are violating their agreements, uh, there's it's 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 a strict adherence. You will you will automatically withdraw or that your your support from or remove or how how strict is that position? And is there and is it would you see it like as a steering committee or is is it the yeah, same? It's, yeah, it's, it's the executive committee of the uh, national uh, committee that that enforces those. Now, uh, we we interview. I mean, we we sit down with the person because you know there's always a chance you're you're um, not being fair about your interpretation of what they did or how they did it or what happened. But after that interview, if we feel it's been a serious violation of the candidate agreement, yeah, we will withdraw the nomination. And if they are already elected to office, and it happens while they're in office, and there's two different domains here, how you behave as a candidate and how you behave as an elected official. But if they're, uh, if they're in violation of the candidate agreement uh, while they're in office, we just don't let them run under our banner again. They, they can't seek re-election as an alliance candidate. And when your own party withdraws their support, that's pretty tough to overcome, even for an incumbent, when the party publicly says that's doing that and describes why they're doing it. And that's my point. That's one of my points about 
why our political parties, including these quote unquote new third parties, don't have some sense of responsibility for the behavior, not the words, but the behaviors of their candidates or their elected officials. I mean, if you're a restaurant owner and you're serving food that's making people sick, you're probably going to go out of business if you don't change the menu or change the cooks or clean up the sanitation or whatever the problem is. If you're producing a car or a product that's crashing and causing injury or death, you're going to go out of business unless you change that car. But our political parties take almost no responsibility for the behavior of their candidates. Unless they end up in jail, they let them continue to stay in office and run again, no matter what they're caught doing. And sometimes um, even then. Yeah. But I, I just, I mean, I don't know why, uh, why we put up with this the way we do as voters, uh, as a nation, other than the fact that we just cannot imagine, as I said earlier, a different approach. And, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to attract a different kind of person to run for public office, someone who is motivated by public service, not by wanting to have a career in elected office. And that's why these candidate agreements are so critical to, to advancing that, that goal. You know, I'm, I'm not going to throw any parties under the, the short bus, <laughs> but um, <laughs> there, I, I was happy with everybody that agreed to talk to us, but there were several parties that after multiple requests, they, they denied and some of them didn't even respond at all and that's a a great concern to me because you know you keep saying public service public service public service and as far as i'm concerned even though i might not be in their state or in the state where they have a candidate i'm still part of a constituency and i'm genuinely interested in what they have to offer and if they are not responding to me now when they're running and trying to grow whatever then how good is their response going to be once they get in office or once they get someone in office so i i, I like you know the public service thing yeah i think you know the answer to that you know, I, I don't know if you saw this recent Gallup poll, gentlemen, but it just came out a little while ago. 17% of Americans approve of Congress. 17%. That's the lowest in, that we've ever seen. Um, we were talking about the shutdown, of course. That, that's going to probably drop that number even lower. Uh, this is the same Gallup poll, by the way, that, that identified the most important problem in the country was government and leadership in Congress by the uh, respondents. Um, Nine percent of re Republicans approve of Congress. You know what's what's so interesting about that? This is one thing that has not changed, though. While the overall rating of Congress is at an all-time low, most respondents still view their own representative favorably. It's <laughs> the rest of them. It's the rest of them are scoundrels, not their not their person. Okay, this is just kind of a tangent, but I, I'm curious because um, this is definitely one of the ones that didn't respond to us. And of course, you don't have to answer this if you don't want. But uh, 
What do you think the the angle is on no labels? I mean, there's a ton of money behind that. They're not talking about where all the money's coming from. I mean, and that. Well, as you know, they've been around a while. Um, they're not. They themselves say they are not a political party, and they themselves say their only um, possible objective is to run a unity ticket for president and vice president in the event that the two major parties put up uh, unpopular candidates like Trump and Biden. <laughs> um, yeah, which how many how many times have we seen the two parties give us crap to choose from? And the old cliche, the lesser of two evils is what Americans are left to, to live with. So um, I think there's a very good chance they will run somebody if it's Biden and Trump. Right now, it looks like it is going to be. Um, that, of course, will, if it works, throw it into the House of Representatives, something that's never happened before. Because with a, with a viable three-person race like that, it's unlikely that anyone will get uh, 50% plus. And God only knows what happens when it goes into the House of Representatives. What they think will happen if they have a presidential candidate who's a former Republican or Democrat and a vice presidential candidate from the other party, that when he gets into the Congress, the Republicans won't vote for the Democrat candidate. Democrats won't vote for the, the, the Republican candidate, but there'll be a coalition that'll vote for the unity ticket because there's one of each. Mm -hmm. And they feel like they'll still have some influence. Well, they're gonna have to pick somebody better than Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema or whoever it is that they're floating right now. Because I don't think they're gonna get that's gonna help their cause any, but whatever. I just was curious. So Yeah, well it it be I, I I agree with you and but I do think that they could definitely be a spoiler. They could definitely uh if they decide to do it, and they say they won't. They say they don't want to be a spoiler, because spoiler, if you define it in today's terms, it really means giving the election to Trump. Um they, they say they won't do that, but political ambition knows, <laughs> knows no limits. So when if the money's there, oh, by the way, the money, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, that they have raised a ton of money. Most of their donors are anonymous. The assumption well, seems... When I reached out well, to them, like the hold music was some very well-produced and... I, I don't know, but I mean, it was it was a song like it could have been played on the radio. And I laughed at it because it was kind of like a Weird Al Yankovic song. But um, it was talking about blue ties and red ties and no ties and <laughs> all of this other crap to make it sound like, you know, that they were in the center and they weren't right or left. But they've got a lot of money. Their website is amazing. So I'd, I'd like to know where it's coming from because I want to know. I mean, that's one of the questions we've been asking all of the parties is how are you guys funded? And well, here's, here's, where, here's where people think, here's, here's where some people pretty close to the sources say they think it's coming from. The reason it's, there's so much of it anonymous is that they, here we're going back to special interest again. Um, there's a lot of, special interest individuals corporations and some organizations but mostly individuals and organizations corporations that have historically supported republicans 
who don't want to see Trump win, but they don't want to support the Democrats. So they're supporting the no labels. And even in the Democratic side of it, there are donor groups, again, corporations and individuals who have supported Democrats who have grave misgivings about Biden, especially his age, and they don't want him they don't want him to be elected again. But they don't want to burn their bridges with those two parties because if you're a corporation or you're an individual with special needs and interests, those are still the two dominant players. And as far as you know, they always will be. So you need them. So that's why they're they're playing this uh, no labels uh, angle as a way to um, get what they want without burning their bridges with the two major parties. I don't think that's going to work. But but since we are talking about money um, and you guys have these very strict guidelines, I'm assuming candidates raise their own money and, and that's part of the agreement. But how is the, the party overall funded? And then do you funnel that money to your candidates as long as they are well behaved? Well, our candidates are really responsible, as you said a minute ago, Brian. They're responsible for raising money. In fact, some of the questions we ask them uh, when they approach us to uh, seek our nomination is, how much money have you raised? How much money can you raise? I mean, we want we want idealists, but we also want pragmat you know pragmatists. Um, you've got to raise some money if you're going to be a competitive candidate. And so we want the right kind of person in terms of their behavior that, as you've already figured out, I'm sure, we're not prescriptive when it comes to policy. We give, we give guidance and we tell them we use the kinds of approaches we hope you'll use to solve problems in these different areas that you had on your sheet. But what we really are prescriptive is in behavior, in term limits, civility, transparency, accountability, uh, consensus, uh, that kind of stuff. So um, they have to raise their own money. We we think they have a competitive advantage. I mean, this poll that uh, came out from the University of Maryland a few months ago on term limits found that uh, 83% of, of registered voters, not just Americans, 83% of registered voters want term limits for Congress. 81% of dam, Dems and 86% of Republicans. It's wildly popular, has been for a long time. And, and you'll see different politicians periodically pretend, this is why the voters are so gullible, they'll pretend to be for term limits. Now, I mean, right now, I think uh, Cruz, Senator Cruz and Ralph Norman in the US House, who's my representative here in South Carolina, are jointly um, sponsoring legislation for a constitutional amendment requiring term limits. Well, you know, it's Christmas morning. I mean, there's not, there's not going to be a constitutional amendment. That takes, what, two-thirds two -thirds of the House and Senate and three-fourths of the states? Yeah. Yeah. That's not going to happen. But they can go on the record of saying, I support term limits. Well, again, that's BS. If you support term limits, you don't need a constitutional amendment. 
All you have to do is pick up the microphone or stare into the camera the next time you're on it and tell us when you're going to leave office. Impose term limits on yourself if you believe in them. They won't do that. So they're not only corrupt, they're lazy. Like I was the they get a, a pretty good check once they they leave office. Um why would I would just go start a think tank and then they could still make money off of it anyway. But well, they, they make so much money when they do leave office, but they don't have that power. That, right. That's that's intoxicating. By the way, you mentioned uh checks how long are we going to let congress shut down the united states government shut off paychecks to military families and others food food programs i mean run down the list and allow them and their staff to continue to receive checks while they're while they're shutting down the government yeah. why in the hell aren't they included in in that in that process what do you think the popularity with that would would be in a poll question right now? If you said to the average American, should members of Congress continue to receive their pay when nearly a million Americans will not get a paycheck within? Uh, well, I guess it'll be next Monday if they shut down first of the month. I, I work at the post office, and uh, yeah, uh, the department of they, that doesn't affect me because we're sort of like out on our own but uh, uh there's all these people from the the census bureau and a huge chunk of people from the department of interior and i mean the department right. of interior that's where the paychecks come from in the first place right they're like they they there's a guy that comes into my post office and it, every time this happens like they go from you know several hundred of people working in this this space to literally like three people and it's yep. just a ghost town until everybody in congress decides that you know, maybe at some point in time, citizens will decide to exact some consequences on them and get get a decision made. But uh, like you said, it's it's my my the people that I vote for are good. It's all the other senators and House of Representative individuals that are the evil mustache twisting backroom conspirators. Yeah, right. they, they can actually vote for their own raises. I think that that's <laughs> just crazy to me that they're like, you know what, I need a raise. So parliamentary procedure, I vote that we all get a raise this next term. Do I have a second? Yes. <laughs> but damn you American auto workers for trying to make sure that you're getting a relatively decent bump in relation to the amount of money that's being given to shareholders and the uh, CEOs. The yays have it. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we've been talking for a while now, and I think you probably touched on some of them, but will you just, you know, reiterate and, and talk about your goals as far as the party goes, um, you know, break them down into the short-term goals, the midterm and, and long-term goals? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of quickies. Um, Short term, uh, we're starting a new fundraising effort. One of the things, we are a totally voluntary, a voluntary organization. We don't have a single staff member who's paid. Everybody is like me, uh, giving their time, which is a good thing in many ways that you've got those kinds of people and we've been able to attract them and keep them. But there's some things that aren't getting done as well as they could. 
if we had some uh, salaried people. So we need to we need to hire an executive director. We need to raise some more money short term. Uh, part of that is to ex expand the brand. This message that I've been in an inarticulate way at this late hour trying to share with you that needs to get out. Um, the only party in American history that requires term limits and you know tax returns and all the things that people say they'd like to see, but they don't expect of any any party to do it. Um, midterm, mid midterm, uh, that's short term. Midterm would be uh, continue to have more candidates on the ballot in more states, large larger organization. But the long term goals, um, you know, we we want the Alliance Party to become the capital T-H-E, the competitive and sustainable alternative approach to the present status quo. And we really work hard at this. And one of the reasons I was critical of some of the other third parties is that we, we have a saying, and we I'll bet it comes up at least once a month in our meetings, that we have to constantly guard against becoming just another version or variation of what we seek to replace. Now, part of that's human nature. And some of the people we attract to the party are people who don't understand what we're trying to do or don't internally really agree with it. And, you know, we've got to make sure that we don't end up looking like and acting like these other parties and have those kinds of candidates. But the, the long-term end result is that we need to make elected offices once again a valued and trusted essential ingredient in our democracy. We've lost trust as a nation in our elected officials. We've lost trust in our government. And I'm afraid that we're beginning to lose trust in the whole concept of democracy. And we've got to have a different type of public servant uh, replacing that trust and right now, I don't see anybody else on the playing field that's trying to do that other than the Alliance Party. So, you know, you mentioned getting more candidates. Um, I know that growth has been part of everyone's goals, whether it was, you know, short, mid or, or long term. Um, I'm looking at your website right now and I see under the, the Meet Our Candidates tab, um for lack of a better word uh you guys have the 2022 election results and you've got you know several states listed um minnesota washington south carolina um yeah those those i guess those are the the three um yeah so are you guys hoping to expand into other states do you currently have whatever you want to call them charters chapters alliances in in these other states or are you right now in the three and hoping to grow into those others and what, what kind of ballot access do you have throughout the country Right. Well, we ebb, to be honest, we ebb and flow depending upon the election cycles. Um, when we came in fifth uh, with our presidential candidate in 2020, we had Rocky uh, in, in 25 states. We had 15 states where he was on the ballot. And then we had an additional 10 states 
where we had registered him as a write-in candidate. And theoretically, that could have, if we'd have won all those, which of course we knew we weren't going to, we could have theoretically gotten 183 electors. Um, he got over 88,000 votes across those 25 states. So at that time, when we had our national convention, we had delegates from 25 states at the convention who cast their votes. It was almost unanimous for him as our candidate. But in the off, you know, the mid elections, the one in 2022, we dropped back to the states that are best organized. We call them our protocol states. They're the ones you, you mentioned, although Florida just um, got uh, minor, minor party status approved uh, this, this month. So Florida will probably become a protocol state also. Protocol states is a fancy word for states that are well enough organized that they can sustain uh, candidacies beyond the presidential election year cycle for mid midterm elections. And that's why we need that executive director that I mentioned to you earlier. It takes so much time and effort that volunteers really can't do well enough to conquer these ballot um, these ballot access requirements, which are onerous, probably unconstitutional in many cases that we see in state after state. They're constantly changing. And I, you guys are probably familiar with some of them, but our state is a relatively easy one. In South Carolina, once we got those 16,000 signatures approved by the election commission, we're on the ballot in perpetuity as long as we run at least one candidate for an office in each election cycle. But we don't we don't have to get a certain number of votes or a percentage or anything else. In Minnesota, you have to get five percent at least five percent at a statewide office race in order to maintain major major party status on the on the ballot. So it it's a rigged system. You have to get all these petitions to get on the ballot, and then in your first outing, when no one has ever heard of you, your party, your candidacy, you'll get five percent in a statewide election, you got to start all over again. So that that that's the kind of thing that we're all third parties are battling against. The um, the Libertarian Party and some that have been around a while got ballot access in some states before some of those more um, unfair barriers were put in place because the states are always upgrading them. The Republicans and Democrats don't agree on much, as, you, as we know. But one thing they do agree on is they don't like competition. <laughs> so at the state level, they're constantly throwing up more and more barriers to have any real viable competition for uh, ballot access. So that's kind of where we are in our short uh, history. The most we had was 25 states that were organized, had delegates for that last presidential race in 2020. Now we're back to four, three or four states that are always in the mix in terms of having candidates. Now we're going to get geared up again for 2024. So given the challenges that you uh, you face um, and other other parties that are not in that uh, uh, the brutally elevated space, um, what would you change to the current political process to make it better for voters, candidates and uh, parties like yourself? 
Well, you've heard about ranked choice voting before, I'm sure. Indeed. Help. Um, you know, we ought to have um, non-political, non-partisan commissions that do redistricting every 10 years. Shouldn't be left up to legislatures. Is that that's where you get into that horse trading that you were talking about, Brian, with the redistricting, gerrymandering, we call it. Indeed. That would help. Term limits, I think, for lawmakers. I think, you know, when you look at the corruption and the dysfunction, you can find it in a lot of different elected offices, but, but the crux of it, the core of the rotten apple are the lawmakers, the legislative bodies at the state and federal level. That's where the special interest, the, the money and the corruption is rampant. And also that's where these people are making laws, passing laws that affect all of us, our kids and our grandkids' quality of life. So it's arguably the most important part of the whole democratic process, and it's at the same time the most corrupted. So that's why we have focused our transparency requirements and our tenure uh, or term limit requirements specifically on legislation. So I, I, I put uh, term limits in that list also. And there's a lot of campaign finance reform that ought to happen, but frankly, until we get a different breed of person uh, more of them in our offices, elected offices, that's not going to happen. Yeah, Citizens United, not not a good thing. Not a good thing. <laughs> so I, I'm messing around on the website, and you guys are doing something really cool that I haven't seen before, and that is you've got you know the meet the candidates thing but then you can pull down to like 2024 and it says you know get involved run for office and you can actually click your state or a state and it tells you what seats are going to be open and what you may be able to run for um so and i don't know if that's good or bad i mean your vetting process should vet anybody out that you know wouldn't be good for office but um i think it's really cool because at least it's getting people more involved and and more informed um and i like i said i've never seen that before and i look at this stuff a lot <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for you, Brian. <laughs> so, but, but another thing I want to point out, when you look at that website, um, look at the faces of the people on the national committee. Um, if you look at some of the leadership in this party, there are a lot of women, not just white again i just did a sample of your of your broadcasts but i've also been involved with this for a long time most of these third parties are almost entirely white men um, yeah. of a certain age which i certainly fit into so you know we have really worked hard at trying to have this party and its leadership represent more closely the demographics of the nation um we have an LBGTQ person on our executive committee. We have a, a woman national chair, Michelle Griffiths, um, the uh, the chair of the South Carolina party, which is 
perhaps our strongest affiliate is an African-American woman. Um, we've got some young people, very young people involved. We had a, a young man right out of college, one year out of college, College of Charleston, who ran for office on our ticket last year. Um, that's important. That's really important, I think, especially for third parties that they're trying to convince voters that they're not just more of the same. They're going to well, have to uh, it's represent those people. Too, because you guys are actually practicing diversity. Like so many corporations and political parties and, and whoever say, you know, diversity, diversity. Well, that's just the, the buzzword of this quarter or this decade or, you know, whatever time frame. So... I like the fact that you guys actually practice it. And I don't think you use the word diversity once. You said, you know, we have women, we have Hispanics, we have black people, you know, we're we're practicing what we preach. And it sounds and it sounds organic, not like tokenism or anything like that. So well well, thank you for noticing that. That's important. And they're they're not just token positions either. You know, sometimes corporations especially will say, well, here's our here's our black representative and here's our woman and all that. But they're not in real leadership positions. The, the, these people that I just pointed out are in some of the top positions in the party. They're not just sitting at the table. Yeah, I think it's, it's great. Um, now, I know you guys actually, so I misinformed our listeners when i said i think it's great because you can click on this thing that says run for office so you guys have a link at the bottom of your page and it actually takes you to an external link that says run for office um and then from that run for office there's another link that takes you to a whole bunch of what essentially are links to help independent parties get elected in either their state or nationally um there were a lot of women's groups in in that group um are you guys i mean obviously you're affiliated with it to some degree because i could click through and and hit that page mm -hmm. is that something that you guys are actively utilizing as either a fundraising device or a marketing tool or anything of that nature, or is it just to inform? No, it's, it's all of the above, Brian. It, you know, it's, it's also trying to practice what we preach, walk to walk. You know, we say find common ground, big consensus and problem solving, collaboration. We, we, we're trying to do that with other groups. And um, for example, this, you guys would be aware of this, but um, we were one of um, two parties that were invited when the initial talk started a little over a year ago about the possibility of creating a party, a new party, which became the forward party under Andrew Yang. Mm -hmm. And we sat at the table for two days in uh, New York and then about a month later, two days in Washington. And you know, we were willing to come there and, and talk about it. Um, we eventually withdrew because they wouldn't buy into the things that I've been talking to you about tonight. We, I, I've been at this long enough. I, I didn't want to be just 
I didn't want just another party, another name on the list that looked like the other ones and attracted the same kinds of people to run for office. And so in the first meeting, it was kumbaya. We talked about transparency and accountability and how great term limits were and all the things that you know reformers talk about. But in the second one, we got down to the nitty gritty in terms of what this party, this new party, which eventually be called the forward party, would, would require or expect of its candidates. And when we proposed the candidate agreement approach and the term limits with some specific numbers and you know the tax returns and some of the other things I've shared with you, they started to balk. And they said, well, you know, we may lose some good candidates. We may lose, this is how they said it. Well, we may lose some candidates who aren't willing to do that. I said, guys, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's why you have it. You don't want anybody, just anybody who wants to run for office, who's amb ambitious, be your candidates. You only want people who are willing to abide by these kinds of behaviors. Otherwise, you're just giving the American people more of the same under a different name. So we still work with the forward party, especially at the state level. They're, they're active here in South Carolina. I know the leadership. But we didn't choose to be a part of that because we just saw it as another entrant into the third party, you know, fracas that wasn't going to be transformational or different or make a change. So we're we're collaborating, we're communicating, we're hopefully persuading others maybe to do some of the things we're doing, but so far that hasn't happened. But um success breeds success, so we'll see. Indeed. You know, the the one thing that I think I appreciate I mean, I appreciated the entire conversation, but the one thing that really stuck with me, because Darren and I have been talking about this for two or three weeks now, and that is we've got to quit identifying ourselves as left and right, because all that's doing is causing a rift. It doesn't matter if you're left Democrat and right Republican or left green and, and right Constitution, you are still creating this rift, and it it's it's making us fight against each other and and what you said about coming together is not necessarily one party but one american populace and and doing something to make change that that really stuck with me i i can appreciate that that idea well thank you I, that's one of the reasons i said at the beginning that we're a political party within a movement the movement is the part you're you just talked about, Brian. Um, you can't just have them. There are some other groups out there um, represent us, and there's some other groups that are trying to bring about reforms. And thank God for them, and I wish them well. But I was in office long enough to know that part of the battle for the kind of changes that this country needs, part of that battlefield has to be the ballot. You can't do it with petitions, demonstrations, think tanks, because these incumbents know what I know you two know, what I know, and hopefully more of your listeners know, and that is that more than 90% of them are gonna get reelected 
in the next election cycle. They know that. And about 50% of them at the state level won't even be challenged because of the uh, gerrymandering. The only contest anymore is in the primary in most of those districts. It's not a question of it's going to be a Republican or a Democrat in those gerrymandered districts. It's only a question of which Democrat or which Republican is going to be elected. And that's not decided in November. That's decided in the primary in the spring. And unless you get primaried, you know, it's just become a new verb. <clears throat> unless you get primaried by your own party, and that only happens if your donors get pissed at you because you haven't done what they wanted you to do, you're going to stay in office as long as you want to stay. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 we're in a vicious cycle and it wouldn't be so terrible if we didn't have all these huge problems, existential problems, some of them, and you've got a bunch of them listed on your list there when you're asking people to rank them that are just not getting addressed and they won't get addressed. They won't get addressed in my lifetime under this system. Yeah, it's funny how uh, checks and balances has turned into structural no history, nothing moving anywhere. Yeah. So. Well, I I I'm out of questions. Um, I think that through the conversation and the the back and forth, you've answered everything that I had. Darren, are you? No, I just I, the 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 way that you've constructed a concept of accountability through that contract concept is uh is very unique as we've done through these different discussions with people. That's uh that's definitely something that uh, that people should be thinking about from one moment to the next. So accountability is never a bad thing. Yeah, I I well, mean I to get people to go to the polls to hold these you know people accountable on some level but i think a contract <laughs> right up front um would help even more so well we're hoping ever? so we're, yeah. we're hoping to you know it's a, if there's there's sort of a reciprocal deal here if we we can figure out how to give the american voter a really different approach a truly different approach that gives at least the promise, if not the guaranteed, of different outcomes and what they've been seeing and that they're so frustrated and disappointed in. If we give them that different approach and the people who represent it, their part of the bargain has to be to vote for them. Quit voting for the same people that you've been voting for all your life because they had an R or a D by their name, even though you didn't trust them, you didn't like what they'd been doing. But you're so damn scared of the other side, the other tribe, that you keep voting for them. So we're trying to do our part, but the voters got to do their part. And that's that's the challenge. That's the education challenge. Yes, indeed, it is for sure. Um, well, Jim, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and I think our listeners will, too. Um, when we're done here i'll get everything compressed and and posted i will obviously email you directly i'm going to post it on twitter if you want me to send it to anybody specifically and 
you know, if so, you can email me that information and I can send it to them as well, or should I just send it to you? Uh, please send it to me for sure. Uh, let me give a little thought to whether there's anyone else. I don't know if you do anything with the media or not, Brian, but if you have any media outlets that you share things with, that would be good. No, the closest thing to a media outlet we've got, I mean, once we post it to our hosting site, it's going to go to Amazon and Spotify and Google and and all of the major podcast uh, players. But, mm -hmm. you know, I don't I don't know anybody at MSNBC or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> 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 But I'll well, listen, guys, I, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I got a little long winded at times, but you can tell I'm passionate about this. Um, but so, so thank you for letting me go on and on. And uh, thanks for your willingness to air these kinds of discussions for your listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. It was our pleasure. And uh, we will, um, like I said, get that over to you. And maybe we'll do some follow up next year to see how things are going. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Jim. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye.